Oh, happy podcast. These are my ears. Their lodge and let them read. Thus, with a kiss I sigh, to ear read this. Subscribe. Hello, and welcome to Ear Read This. My name's Ash, but what's in a name? Today, we are talking about William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Since the 18th century, a wooing man has been known as a Romeo. In the 20th, Juliet's famous balcony was added to a house in Verona. People have traipsed there ever since to leave love poems on the wall beneath the balcony and visit the courtyard. There, as promised by Montague in the play's finale, stands a statue of Juliet. Custom has it that for luck in love, you must rub its right boob. More than any other Shakespeare play, Romeo and Juliet has to contend with the problem of its own fame. How does a play maintain any dramatic or tragic credibility, any element of surprise, when even those who have never seen or read the play know exactly how it will turn out? In the course of today's podcast, I will try to answer this, as well as look at the play's relationship to those we have already discussed, look at the role of language, of mannerly devotion, and wonder whether our two lovers were, as W.H. Auden believed, damned. Are the fates of Romeo and Juliet written in the stars, or is this merely a tragedy of errors? Misapprehensions, lovers' potions, and well-meant secrets have had comic ends in Shakespeare's past. Is Romeo and Juliet perhaps a demonstration of how Saul bellowed characterised death as the black backing a mirror needs if one is to see anything? If Bellow was correct, then in 1593 to 1594, Shakespeare would be seeing things very clearly indeed. At the time of writing Romeo and Juliet, death was running riot in Shakespeare's London. A plague outbreak had closed the theatres in January of 1593. During that hot, blood-maddening summer, 15,000 Londoners would die from the sickness, about a tenth of the entire population. As a result, Shakespeare and co. hit the road and toured plays such as Richard III to Shrewsbury, Bath, Ludlow and more. Shakespeare took the opportunity of theatres being closed to publish an erotic poem, Venus and Adonis, in the summer of 1593. Its dedication to his patron, Southampton, declares the poem to be the first heir of my intention. This might be taken as typical patron flattery, or maybe reveals a desire popularly suspected of Shakespeare to be more a poet than a playwright. The poem features an ill-starred pair of lovers and is taken, as the story of Pyramus and Thisbe was, from Ovid's Metamorphoses. Shakespeare may have also pricked, been pricked on to display his flair for love poetry by the success of his chief rival, Christopher Marlowe, who had previously published his own rollicking love poem, Hero and Leander. Only one copy of the 1593, Venus and Adonis, survives, and as Peter Ackroyd says in his biography of Shakespeare, the first print run had been read literally to disintegration. It was in his lifetime far more popular than any of his plays and did more to secure his literary reputation than any drama. Out of a season of death, Shakespeare has seemed to offer forth some of his most erotic and lyrical poetry, both on stage and off it. Ackroyd goes on to highlight another tragedy, one more local, that may have benefited Shakespeare too. In 1593, Christopher Marlowe was stabbed to death as the result of a great reckoning in a little room in Deptford. For the first five or six years of Shakespeare's dramatic and poetic career, he had been in Marlowe's shadow. The two parts of Marlowe's Tamburlaine had begun a new phase of Elizabethan theatre, and the mighty line of Marlowe's muscular blank verse weighed heavily on Shakespeare's mind. Marlowe's The Jew of Malta would draw out Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Marlowe's Dido of Carthage would send Shakespeare to the classics for inspiration, and Edward II would leave Shakespeare dissatisfied with his own early attempts at historic drama, his plays depicting the reign of Henry VI. 
As Aykroyd says, from this point on, he would have a clear run. It is perhaps not surprising that his great lyrical plays, Romeo and Juliet, Midsummer Night's Dream, Love's Labour's Lost and Richard II, emerge in the succeeding four years. The evidence of Marlowe's remaining influence over Shakespeare continues after the former's death. Gallop apace is a phrase Shakespeare recalled from Marlowe's Edward II, which he gives to Juliet. He may well have had access to Marlowe's play, as it was in his company's repertoire. The source of Shakespeare's play comes from a narrative poem published in 1562 by Arthur Brooke, titled The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet, and would mark Shakespeare's second try at tragedy, having previously written Titus Andronicus, whose bloodiness and depravity may again owe something to the excesses of Marlowe's Tamburlaine. Romeo and Juliet would be his first successful tragedy, and it is important to banish how well we know the play, and remember that it would have been something of a surprise for the Elizabethan audiences for lovers to be taken so seriously. The grand falls of men like Titus and Tamburlaine were seen as the stuff of tragedy, not lovesick teenagers. It was poems like Venus and Adonis that made Shakespeare's reputation as an erotic poet, an English Ovid, but plays like Romeo and Juliet have become the lasting statue to his romantic side. There's been endless speculation of Shakespeare's own romantic life, more than enough to fill another podcast with. Who is the dark lady and who was the fair youth? Was he gay, bisexual, faithful or promiscuous? While it's probable that he was at least the latter, all we know for sure is that at the age of 18, he married a much older woman in Stratford, called Anne Hathaway. The fact that Shakespeare moved to London has been taken as evidence that the marriage was unhappy, that Anne wasn't learned or, or appealing enough to keep a man like Shakespeare from straying. This is all speculation and Anne Hathaway has suffered quite unfairly at the hands of those gleefully cooking up a, a more suitably colourful sexual life for the bard. Beyond supposition, based on the content of his fiction, there is very little proof of Shakespeare's rumoured love affairs, whether it is with the wife of John Florio, a prostitute called Black Luce, or Amelia Lanier, and he did, after all, return to Hathaway once he was done with the London playwriting life. There is, however, one famous, completely unproven story about the sexual life of Shakespeare in London, which, even if apophrical, is too good not to share. It was first published in 1759 by Thomas Wilkes in his General View of the Stage. It concerns Shakespeare and his leading actor, Richard Burbage, who, as well as being the first Othello, Macbeth and Hamlet, was more than likely the first Romeo as well. At the time of this story, he was playing Richard III. As the tale has it, Shakespeare overhears an attractive young woman talking to Burbage before the performance of Richard III. She communicates that her master is out of town and she would like the pleasure of his company that night. Burbage was up for it, took her address and said that he, she should await his signal. Three taps on the door and he would exclaim, "'Tis I, Richard Third. Shakespeare then beats Burbage to the woman's house and gives the signal as he heard Burbage describe. The woman is surprised to find a writer and director, not the actor, but we are given to believe that Shakespeare assails her with his honey tongue and convinces her maybe that actors have more performance anxieties than writers do. Soon afterwards, Burbage arrives and there are three knocks at the door and he gives his big lusty signal. Shakespeare opens the window above him and tells Burbage to get lost, for William the Conqueror had come before Richard III. Even if it is nothing more than pub rumour, the story alone evidences two things. One, the reputation of Shakespeare's own personality had acquired a degree of amorous legend. And two, that he was believed to be as quick-witted in real life as he was on paper. It seems safe to assume that Shakespeare was capable of being funny. It certainly seems impossible to believe the opposite. Some critics have complained that Shakespeare is often funny in the wrong places, having quibbling, too many quibbling clowns bookending shattering tragic soliloquies. 
Certainly Romeo and Juliet, despite its obvious status as tragedy, doesn't seem like Lear and Hamlet and Macbeth to remain in a tragic key throughout. The play begins, unusually for Shakespeare but not for the time, with a prologue, delivered by a chorus in the form of a sonnet. Two houses, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. That would sort of do for a scene-setter, would it not? Our play is set in Verona, there are two households here persisting in an ancient feud, enter ensemble, duel, etc. But no, the prologue, perhaps stung, having auditioned for the epilogue, decides to spoil the ending. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. Ah, so they die then. Well, it doesn't seem to matter much to Shakespeare whether or not you've heard this one before. He tells you exactly what's going to happen in the first eight lines. While nowadays, spoiler alerts are shrieked out by frightened YouTubers, film magazines and book reviewers, for Elizabethan audiences, even for the uneducated groundlings, the appeal of the theatre was seeing a company spin on a story they already knew. This is one of the confusions some people have when looking at just the titles of Elizabethan plays, multiple companies doing their own version of Hamlet or Lear. Through our eyes, this looks like the work of rip-off merchants, a 16th century's very own Bugs Life Ants situation. But no, playwrights dramatised the stories that were popular. They saw their skill as being in the dramatising, not the dreaming up of original plots. We might claim to want original stories in our present-day culture, but we don't really. We valorise interesting spins on an ex existing idea, hunger after media we can explain as existing title but in different genre, like Cinderella but a horror movie, Bugs Life but with Woody Allen. In the words of Steve Aylett, true crea creativity, the making of a thing which has not been in the world previously, is originality by definition. It increases the options, not merely the products. But while many claim to crave originality, they feel an obscure revulsion when confronted with it. The prologue concludes, The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two-hour traffic of our stage. The which, if you will patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. It's unequivocal. The lovers, who we haven't even met, are going to die. Even the sonnet's rhymes infer that things are going to get rough. Dignity is answered by mutiny, seen by unclean, love by remove, life to strife. And then what? Do we see the fearful lover's first kiss? No, we get a series of puns from the servants of the House of Capulet, who quibble over coals, colliers, collar and collars. This is the Shakespearean equivalent of reciting a series of woeful cheese jokes and just saying them all to get them out of the way, as if they weren't intended to amuse, but rather a random spot check one has to occasionally and painfully perform. Ma Mascarpone, come on, bear. Hello, me. That's mature. It has been said before that great writers tend to have a weakness for bad puns, and when it comes to bad puns, Shakespeare is the undisputed goat. Jeez. This early tragedy is one of the most punning of all of his plays. M. M. Mahoud says that even a really conservative count yields 175 quibbles. Whether or not these quibbles were funny in their own day, or groaners, or just fluff, is hard to say. The point for us is that having opened his play with on gloomily tragic terms, Shakespeare then chooses to fire off some puns. And there are a lot of other signs that we are maybe not in the overpoweringly tragic territory the prologue promised. Although a brawl quickly breaks out in the first scene, the leaders of the heads of the house, Capulet and Montague, are not depicted as particularly intimidating men, but rather the doddery old patriarchs familiar from farce. Capulet, witnessing the brawl, calls for a sword, to which his wife says, 
A crutch, a crutch. Why call you for a sword? As Susan Snyder says, other aspects of this initial world of Romeo and Juliet suggest comedy. Its characters are the minor aristocracy and servants familiar in comedies, concerned not with wars and the fate of kingdoms, but with arranging marriages and managing the kitchen. One of these servants, Peter, was originally played by Shakespeare's first clown, Will Kemp. We have met him before as Crab in Two Gentlemen of Verona, Costard in Love's Labour's Lost, and Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Though A Midsummer Night's Dream would be likely performed after Romeo and Juliet, Will Kemp's appearance would still be a highlight of the play, despite the fact that Punning Peter is nowadays a role that just cries out to be cut. But his importance in his own days, evidenced by Shakespeare having in one scene slipped up in his own draft, or foul papers, by writing Enter Will Kemp instead of Enter Peter. There is also Friar Lawrence, who although he is the would-be agent of salvation, also comes from a rich heritage of comic stage friars. Now if you're a lifelong fan of the podcast and were with us all the way back in September, when we were just crazy young dreamers, you might be having a bit of deja vu. Friars, you might ask? Verona? A balcony? But... But this is the stuff of two gentlemen, no? That episode you did without the sound turned all the way up. Well, you'd be absolutely right, and a bit of a bitch. Because Romeo and Juliet shares an awful lot in common with more than one of the plays we've already talked about. It's almost as if Shakespeare had to build his tragedy out of the same prop cupboard as his earlier comedy. Characters from earlier Shakespeare plays seem to be hanging around in the wings. We hear of a Valentine, a Rosaline, and a Petruchio. But puns and friars and the presence of clowns are frou-frou. There remains, even in Romeo and Juliet's moments without them, a haywire notion of the comic, a sense that Shakespeare has taken out the masks of comedy and tragedy and resolved to wear them both at once. Our first description of Romeo tells us that he has been adding to clouds more clouds with his deep sighs. And given that we hear that he is pining after a woman whose name isn't Juliet, we're inclined to not take his condition too seriously. In fact, he sounds rather like another young man, Proteus, mooning after his own unrequited love. This infatuation isn't to last, of course, as Susan Snyder again points out that Romeo soon displays a classic comic adaptability, switching from the impossible love to the possible, just as Proteus, Demetrius, Phoebe and Olivia do in their own respective comedies. Having spent a great deal of his stage time before meeting Juliet, testifying to his undying love for Rosaline, Romeo forgets her the moment he meets his true love. Juliet is not already in love with someone else, but she is being courted, and both she and Romeo go to the party where they first meet, expecting romance from other quarters. Juliet is told Paris will be her suitor, and Romeo goes, hoping to find Rosaline. The point to all this is that the sudden switch, the collapsing of Romeo's vows, has in the past been played for laughs, in Two Gentlemen of Verona, and will be even more so in Shakespeare's next play, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Because this is a tragedy, this is one of the reasons why it's my personal belief that Romeo and Juliet in performance has to fight a little bit harder than most of the other plays in order, to, in order to seem credible. This is due in part, as I said in the introduction, to the fame of the play. But as the prologue demonstrates, whether or not you know the ending is no concern of Shakespeare's. There is also the difficulty in finding actors youthful enough to summon up the picture of early love, yet seasoned enough to sell it as tragedy. If the youthfulness isn't there, the lovers seem pathetically naive. If the depth isn't, we might as well side with the parents. The audience must believe, as we the reader believe, that these two young lovers are as capable of containing the terrific emotions as they are describing them. Maynard Mack says, Comic overstatement aims at being preposterous. Until it becomes so, it remains flat. Tragic overstatement aspires to be believed, and unless in some sense it is so, remains bombast. Shakespeare seems to have been aware of this, and even perhaps to have mocked himself for it. Eyes, look your last, cries Romeo in the tomb at the end of the play. And in a different tomb, in a different play, Bottomus Pyramus will cry, Eyes, do you see? 
Commenting on the similarity of these pre-suicide-for-love exclamations, Victor Kiernan says, Whether or not the author was caricaturing himself, he was capable of seeing life in one mood as tragedy and in another as farce. In performance, the spirit of farce would follow Romeo and Juliet right up to their deaths in the form of Will Kemp. Once the sombre finale had played out, with gratuitous four corpses on stage, Kemp would have led the company in a merry jig. Peter Ackroyd sees this as another indication of the essential stridency of Elizabethan drama, where there is no necessary composure or middle tone. So is Romeo and Juliet tragedy throughout, a hijacked comedy, or a hybrid, a play of much tragical mirth? It's comical in itself that we constantly describe Shakespeare in terms of genres, his comedies, his histories, his tragedies, perhaps his romances and his problem plays, given that he so frequently ignores, outgrows or subverts them. What is true is that despite the prologue spoiling it all, despite the fact that we kind of already knew that Romeo and Juliet weren't going to grow old together, it is the comical aspects of the play that make us want to believe. If it was all sorrow from the start, the appeal of the play would be in line with the Elizabethans' taste in theatre. We would watch or read the play in order to admire the skill in how Shakespeare writes or a production stages the fall. Because the drama is not so straightforwardly tragic, because unlike Macbeth and Othello, our tragic heroes have no debt of guilt, reading the play can still leave us wanting to be willingly duped, just as we are reading A Midsummer Night's Dream. Whether you're reading it for the first or hundredth time, it's hard to stop yourself from considering an alternate ending, from imaginatively correcting the mishaps and stray trivia that wind up having fatal consequences. The identification and sympathy with the lovers, the desire for the lovers to reunite, was so strong for David Garrick in the 1700s that he had his Juliet wake up just before Romeo dies. And yet, Ralph Berry says that the greatest critical error concerning Romeo and Juliet is to assume that the play more or less identifies with the lovers. For the true counterforce, says Berry, we must look to the violent commentary of Mercutio. To illustrate what he means, it is useful, if somewhat simplifying, to imagine Shakespeare at a creative crossroads. Am I a playwright or a poet? No, the tone of that rings too much of modern identity de determination. Let's go with, shall I continue to work in theatre or pursue patronage as a poet? It wasn't only an occupational decision, it was also an interrogation of form. How do I write poetry for the stage without it being at the cost of the drama? This is a question we can imagine him having ever since he first heard that mighty line of Christopher Marlowe's. It was a question he had explored in at least one play already. In Romeo and Juliet, it is a shadow plot thrown against the wall by the lover's burst of, bursts of lightning. Shakespeare's Verona is not only boiling with brawls, but also sodden with sonnets. There is the chorus delivering the prologue sonnet as well as another sonnet after the first act. Romeo and Juliet create a spontaneous sonnet when they first meet. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much. Which mannerly devotion shows in this? For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Have not saints' lips and holy palmer's too? I, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Oh then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do, they pray. Grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. Saints do move, though grant for prayer's sake. Then move not, while my prayer's effect I take. Brackets kiss. A fourteen-line sonnet, with the rhyme scheme of A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, just like Shakespeare's own sonnets, only this one is split between two voices. This is wooing with wordplay, but can there be a more compelling way to recreate the effect orally of catching someone's eye at a party and everything else falling away? The play ripples and trills with more musical effects than a digital keyboard. 
It's hardly surprising that it has inspired over 20 operas, symphonies by Berlioz and Tchaikovsky, as well as the musical West Side Story. Musical verse, rhyme and lyricism occur not only where they are expected, at the coming together or parting of the lovers, but elsewhere too. When the prince breaks up the brawl in the first scene, he exclaims, Rebellious subjects, enemies to peace, profaners of this neighbour stained steel. Old Capulet, in a brief dialogue which only functions to invite Paris, Juliet's suitor, to his party, says, At my poor house, look to behold this night, earth-treading stars that make dark heaven light. There is an ardour, an ecstasy in these lines which could quite easily be transferred to the lovers, but instead it is given to a character who, whilst not explicitly a villain, is shown to be an insensitive and a fool. Yet Capulet gets some beautiful lines. Such comfort as do lusty young men feel when well-apparelled April at the heel of limping winter treads. Even such delight among fresh female buds shall you this night inherit at my house. In a world where even corpulent old duffers like Capulet get to let off liquid warbles like that, it is not difficult to believe in the existence of a character like Romeo. A well-versed and sonnet-ridden lover, with tears augmenting the fresh morning dew, who, private in his chamber, pens himself. James L. Calderwood writes that Romeo comes to Juliet not merely from the streets of Verona and the house of Montague, but from the shallows of Petrarchan love dotage as well. She notices this and pulls him up on it at once remarking on his manly devotion, saying he kisses by the book, which could be a compliment or a wry recognition of his practice technique. This prototype, it seems, is already a professional Romeo. Juliet, we may assume, is the less experienced lover. The dialogue the couple share is the closest we as readers get to see of a consummation between them, and despite her inexperience from what there is, we see that Juliet is the more inspired lover. Romeo's imagery comes from the lover's manual. Juliet chides him for swearing by the moon. Oh, swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon, that monthly changes in her circled orb, lest that thy love proves likewise changeable. Romeo knows all the lines, but Juliet shows him he has forgotten to question what they all mean. He's also quickly baffled, almost submissive in the face of unreturned love. Spurned by Rosaline, he thrashes about in what our old friend Dr. Johnson has described as this toil of antithesis. Oh, brawling love! Oh, loving hate! Oh, anything of nothing first create! Oh, heavy lightness, serious vanity, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms, feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick health, and so on. The brilliance of giving these lines to Romeo is that at the time of delivery they are the hyperbolic posturings of a lovesick young man. By the end of the play, their misshapen chaos is snarled into a credible, well-seeming form with devastating results. There are other signs that Romeo is not quite the smooth seducer his name has come to represent. He has attempted to bribe Rosaline into giving her virginity up to him with saint-seducing gold. It seems that for Romeo, when his pretty words fail, he succumbs to base tactics. This is exactly the same as Proteus in the controversial ending of Two Gentlemen of Verona, who, when rejected by his love, declares that he will woo her like a soldier and attempt to rape her. We we don't know how Romeo would have behaved if Juliet had not been interested in him, and yet it is against the rules of romance to assume he would have shaken hands and been on his way. In Romeo, we see the problems encountered by someone who has done too much reading up on romance, and fittingly, the words of a lover who kisses by the book has, in Mark Van Doren's phrase, a somewhat printed sound. Oh, teach me how I should forget to think, cries Romeo, wishing to make sense of the chaos of life by ceasing to rely on his stock imagery, his single meanings, his training, if you like, in love. Juliet has one answer, to remove the word from its meaning. Wherefore art thou Romeo, she famously asks. Knowing that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, she she wishes, faced with an impossible love, to disassociate the name from the meaning, from the man. And Romeo is quick to accept. Call me but love and I'll be new-baptised. 
The shock of a real love tripping on the heels of a shallow one has given Romeo a new lease. Had he his name written, he says, he would tear the word. This, for a man who kisses by the book, is at least progress of a kind. But Romeo's sickness leaves him by degrees, in the words of a fellow sufferer, Barone, and he does persist in some of his more programmed phrases. Juliet consistently outdoes him, her phrases skipping beyond the reach of his imagery. My bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. Romeo is witty and pretty, but Juliet possesses more verbal intuition. That still doesn't protect her. Her inclination to dename the unkind world, to cut herself and Romeo off, cannot end well. In the Orbard or Dawn song that the lovers share, when they last see each other alive, she desperately applies the same logic that she earlier used to reason what's in a name, to try and halt the coming of morning. It was the nightingale and not the lark, she says. Believe me, love, it was the nightingale. Her attitude worked on Romeo precisely because he was willing to tear the word, to be new baptised because of his love for Juliet. The rest of the world, however, is not Juliet's friend, and if it walks like a lark and quacks like a lark, by any other name it's still a lark. Incidentally, it was believed in Shakespeare's day that it was the female nightingale that sings, not the male. A fitting error, in that within our couple, the female has outsung the male, but she has spun her song out of a false premise. I am, I promise, circling back to that violent commentary of Mercutio, who is, in the opposite of his play, swaggering into this podcast halfway through after a conspicuous absence. The character of Mercutio has been at various times considered the richest part of the play, somewhat redundant, baffling, essential, cruel, bothersome, brilliant and bizarre. We sense the great power of him, and yet he is disinterested, even irritated by the direction the play is taking. He is like a yawning lion in the middle of the stage, and the rest of the characters make their drama around him. Unlike Romeo, and indeed the other young men, he barely speaks in rhyme at all, preferring a spiky, flexible prose. He detests affectation and mocks both Tybalt and Romeo for it. His famous Queen Mab speech, in which he characterises a fairy queen as visiting sleepers and influencing their dreams, has no particular consequence for the plot, but voices an intelligible counter-argument to Romeo's earlier despair at the chaos of life. No, says Mercutio, it is a chaos to be revelled in. Mercutio and Juliet's nurse are often scene stealers in the production of Romeo and Juliet, but the nurse, while comic, is still limited by her type. Mercutio could be a refugee from any other of Shakespeare's plays, most probably one in which he is the title character. Last time we discussed E.M. Forster's distinction of flat and round characters, and Mercutio, more so even than the lovers, is certainly the latter. He himself emphasises his individuality. I will budge for no man's pleasure, I. Unpredictable, strange, playful and captivating, he is, despite all his talk of dreams, of airy nothing, the voice of reason and reality in the play. Intimations of doomed love can have no truck while Mercutio is there to wither them away. He makes sunny Verona deathless until he himself is killed. Then Mercutio is transformed into nothing but the echo of a curse, a plague on both your houses. Moments earlier we have seen Friar Lawrence attempt to bond the Capulets and Montagues by secretly marrying two of them. Now Mercutio accomplishes a much more lasting bond, that is the earlier bond's demonic twin, by cursing both houses in the same breath. This sudden intrusion into a world of laughter and romance may seem familiar. Closer to any other play in the canon, says Ralph Berry, Romeo and Juliet stands near in spirit to love's labours lost. The Petrarchan world of Navarre, like that of Verona, is penetrated by an irrefutable and annihilating reality. In Love's Labour's Lost, reality arrives at the very end of the play, in the form of Marcade, messenger of death. In Romeo and Juliet, reality ends at the end of Act 3, with the death of Mercutio. Both Marcade and Mercutio are descendants of Mercury. They are mercurial messengers. The death-marked arrivals signal the leaving behind of the comic world, as well as the love songs and sonnets that abound in it. 
There has been those who said that Shakespeare had to kill off Mercutio because he would have taken over the play. This is patronising and silly. Coleridge thought it nonsense. He might be a complex and round character, but he isn't more alive than the person who wrote him. He didn't tap scribbling Will Shakespeare on the shoulder and suggest he change the title to Mercutio and Mercutio. Dr Johnson got it right when he said Mercutio's wit, gaiety and courage will always procure him friends that wish him a longer life. Yes, we want him to stick around, but that isn't the same thing as him wanting it. His death is unexpected, harsh and essential. In terms of the plot, it prompts Romeo to kill Tybalt in revenge and sets up a series of events that will lead both he and Juliet to the tomb. But it's not only banishment and circumstance that dooms the lovers, it is also the inflexibility of their outlook. With Mercutio dead, who, exasperated with Romeo, implored him to drop his mooning act and be himself, who has told him when love is rough with you, be rough with love, and has done so outside of the mannered, honour-driven speech of the other characters. With him out of the way, there is no way back for Romeo. He must see to the end the fearful passage that his narrow language has laid out for him. A.J. Smith makes the point that with the late 16th century satirists such as Dunn and Marston, the deification of women that came with Petrarch and Dante went rudely through the door. It amounted to nothing more than a self-deception, a projection of unsatisfied desire. Ralph Berry comments on this, saying that though A.J. Smith is talking of Dunn and Petrarch, it describes perfectly well the point that Mercutio makes to Romeo. The mannered artifice of love's labours lost is here in Verona. The first play ended with Shakespeare's hero in love with Rosaline, and this play begins with a hero in love with a Rosaline. Like Barone, he woos by numbers. If we take Romeo's love of Rosaline, who fittingly remains only a name, seriously, we deflate the tragedy of the play and side with the adults. Instead, we are forced to see Romeo as wooing in a pretense of love at first, and having, once confronted with true love, to begin to drop his pretensions. As well as the out-of-control circumstances forcing the lovers to their doom, we follow Shakespeare's reflections on how poetry must bend and submit to the demands of drama. As Romeo experiences a realer love and is encouraged by Juliet and Mercutio to discard the sonnets and rote lover imagery, we see him absorbing, rather like Shakespeare absorbed the odd line of Marlowe's, some of the formulations of Mercutio. We waste our lights in vain like lamps in day, says Mercutio. Romeo, having met his Juliet, reformulates this idea of love, saying, her cheek would shame those stars as daylight doth a lamp. And as Romeo is led towards a less mannered way of lovemaking, so too has Shakespeare been led away from pure poetry to, in Jonathan Bates' words, the fluid blank verse that he perfected in his mature tragedies. What Shakespeare has realised, perhaps, during those times of plague and poetic efforts, combined with the breathing space afforded him by the death of his rival Christopher Marlowe, is that the poet's art is private and the dramatist's is public. In this play, which begins with a public sonnet, Shakespeare will, for the first time, align his poetic gifts with the demands of drama. James L. Calderwood highlights the significance of the lover's final interrupted orbard as bearing the clear implication that lyric cannot remain sufficient unto itself in drama, but like the lovers themselves, must be sacrificed to a larger conception of the form. It's hard to imagine Shakespeare accomplishing this kind of transition seriously, with characters who are any older than Romeo and Juliet. One of the difficulties of staging Romeo and Juliet is the age of the characters. Juliet is only 13, extremely young even for Shakespeare's day, when the average age of marriage for ordinary women was 24. In Brooks' poem, Juliet is young too, but a somewhat more acceptable 16. Peter Ackroyd suggests that the change in age is Shakespeare catering to the lasciviousness of his citizens, being, as he was, a shameless master of effects. Despite modern queasiness of eroticising a 13-year-old, Romeo and Juliet has an energy unique to the teenager. Certain moments, even today, can sound a resonance with the behaviour of teenagers. Take, for example, Romeo's disappearing off at the party, abandoning his friends, or this wonderfully honest indecision of Juliet's. 
I would have thee gone, and yet no farther than a wanton's bird that lets it hop a little from his hand, like a poor prisoner in his twisted jives, and with a silken thread plucks it back again, so loving jealous of his liberty. Is there anything more authentically teenage than that feeling of loving jealous? The play is also as prickly and restless as a teenager's hectic life should be, with, as Adrian Poole says, images of high velocity, birds, wings and tennis balls ricocheting through the, throughout the scenes. It is a play where there is never enough time. Susan Snyder says that time in comedy generally works for regeneration and reconciliation, but in tragedy it propels the protagonist to destruction. There is never enough of it, or it goes wrong somehow. In Comedy of Errors, Shakespeare had already proven himself adept at intensifying time. Where Arthur Brooke had let his lovers meet every night for a month or two before marrying, Shakespeare lets them meet once, with Romeo already banished for the murder of Tybalt. And it is not merely a speeding up. As with other plays of Shakespeare's, Romeo and Juliet has a kind of double time whereby rapid eventful scenes covering a lot of action go side by side with slow explorations of feeling. As Peter Ackroyd says, the success of this device is manifest in the fact that no audience seems to notice it. Last time we discussed the prodigious amount of moon imagery in A Midsummer Night's Dream, well, the forecast for Romeo and Juliet is lightning. Flashes of it fork through the play as frequently as a good Frankenstein movie, an imagistic partner to what Coleridge called the dazzling light which a man of genius throws over every circumstance. So much of the play rests on hair-trigger impulses. As Juliet says, it is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning which doth cease to be ere one can say it lightens. Impatience grips all. Good morrow, cousin, says Benvolio. Is the day so young? replies Romeo. Between the lightning swashes of sword duels, no one hears the repeated warnings and advice of the friar. These violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die like fire and powder. Here comes the lady, he says, meaning Juliet. Oh, so light a foot will ne'er wear out the everlasting flint. Wisely and slow, he recommends. They stumble that run fast. But this young cast of characters has no time to waste. Romeo claims vengeance for his murdered friend, while Mercutio's soul is but a little way above our heads. Juliet, as usual getting the most memorable phrase, sums up her youthful restlessness with So tedious is this day, as is the night before some festival, to an impatient child that hath new clothes and may not wear them. Such impatient children have no time to drink what the friar calls adversity's sweet milk, philosophy. They have not reached the age of prevarication. They are all anti-Hamlets, who decide, declare, and stab themselves or others without a second thought. Despite all this rushing around, Romeo and Juliet, in the words of M. M. Mahoud, Stellify each other. Turn one another into stars. Juliet has the mysterious and beautiful lines, cut him out in little stars, and Romeo has the equally famous, Juliet is the sun. Despite all the lightning of their action, they are trying, it would seem, to make something lasting or eternal of each other. But for either to shine, they must be set against darkness, a rich jewel set in an Ethiop's ear, in Romeo's phrase. Fittingly, for a lover who craves the coming of night, his vocabulary is not very woke. The friction between the impulsiveness and speed of Romeo and Juliet's love and the permanence which they both try to immediately enforce upon it is their attempt to bottle lightning. This is their undoing. In Juliet's analogy of that wanton, too loving jealous of the bird to quite let it go, the end result, of course, would be a dead bird. And their inability to let each other go will cost them their lives. For all of the lovers' premonitions or intimations of being doomed, damned, it is they themselves who determine, perhaps even write their own destiny. Their fates are written with, rather than written in, the stars. The two characters who earn Mercutio's ire, Tybalt and Romeo, are affected personifications of death and love, respectively. In sonnet-ridden Verona, Tybalt is a goth-like outcast, interested only in death and violence. 
However, it is his earlier laughable perception of the world that comes to be. This intrusion shall, now seeming sweet, convert to bitterest gall, he promises, echoing one of Romeo's early antitheses about what love is. The secrecy of Romeo and Juliet's love has driven them to loathe daylight and worship the night. Come, civil knight, thou sober-suited matron all in black, cries Juliet. Even before their suicides, death is something of a third wheel in their relationship. By the time they reach the tomb, Romeo feels cuckolded. Shall I believe that unsubstantial death is amorous, and that the lean, abhorred monster keeps thee here in the dark to be his paramour? The linking of love and death, the eroticism of death, doesn't end there. To die, in Elizabethan parlance, meant not only to expire, but also to climax. For Romeo to die with Juliet was not as cut and dry as it sounds. Romeo drinks poison from a cup, and Juliet stabs herself with a dagger. The sexual innuendo of both these items has set Freudian hearts beating faster than if Romeo cried out his father's name in bed. The intensity of Romeo and Juliet's passion comes as a sobering shock to the warring families. Only Friar Lawrence and the, and the reader have been privy to their entire relationship. Like terrorists, Romeo and Juliet's ability to love death more than life has shaken their parents to the bones. The sight of their bodies, says Lady Capulet, is a bell that warns my old age to a sepulchre. As the grieving Montagues and Capulets gather in the glooming peace around the bodies of Romeo and Juliet, Tybalt and Paris, we hear, almost as an aside to the misery, that Lady Montague too has died. Those five, added to Mercutio, bring the body count to six, an equal three each on either side of those with Montague or Capulet sympathies. To blame the lovers' deaths on the inflexibility of the adults is a teenage response, especially in Shakespeare's day when the idea of children marrying for love would still seem pretty wild. Instead, the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, that is, the lovers, is their failure to make a private love a public one. The success of Romeo and Juliet, the play, is Shakespeare's triumph in converting his skill as a private poet into a thrilling drama. That's about all I've got time for today. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, you can let us know or show your support by following us on Facebook, Instagram, giving us a review on iTunes, or emailing your thoughts at eareadthis at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with the Foul Papers. Until then... Happy reading. <laughs>